0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Sleep hot. Mattress Firm's sleep experts can match you with a cooling mattress from the Temper Breeze collection
1: from Tempur-Pedic so you can experience measurably cooler sleep all night. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day Sale. Sleep at night.
2: Hey, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates, in for Sam Sanders. My guest on the show today is best-selling author Jennifer Weiner. She's the mind behind some of the biggest books of the last two decades, Good in Bed, Little Earthquakes, In Her Shoes. That book, In Her Shoes, even got turned into a major feature film in 2005, starring Cameron Diaz, Tony Collette, and Shirley MacLaine. Is this Ella Hirsch? Yes, it is. Did you have a daughter
1: named Caroline?
2: This is my granddaughter, Maggie Feller. Oh, hello. Turns out I have a grandmother I never knew about. Our mother was dad. The grandmother might have come in handy. Jennifer gives us the delicious backstory to getting her work adapted for the big screen. She also talks about her latest book, Mrs. Everything, and how her writing has shown her books aren't just for women, even if they've been called chick lit in the past. You should know that I talked to Jennifer back when Megxit first broke. I really needed to get her take on that. So here we go. Mm-hmm. Karen, yes. nice to talk to you. I am so glad to hear your voice at the other end. I have read several of your books and um, when Mrs. Everything came out, sort of got into it over the holidays and when they said, you know, would you guest host and who do you want to talk to? It's like Jennifer Weiner. Oh, I'm so
0: glad. Thank you.
2: I was also thinking about you yesterday, knowing I was going to talk to you when it happened, and I thought, holy crap, oh. could Jennifer Weiner have <laughs> written that? Did she dream this up so I could ask her about it? Well, I
0: actually, I'm writing a piece about it for The Times right now. Um, I'm completely, completely riveted. And it's, it's just made me think that, like, we here in America should have our own royalty. No, like, no, we should not. What? Well, let me let me tell you why though. Let me tell you because I think that the, the job of, like, the public-facing persona of America, that's always been the first lady. And we don't pay our first ladies. And some of them just either don't want to do the job or aren't very good at it. If we just have a celebrity do it, like somebody who's either already famous or really wants to be famous, and and get, they won't have any power. You know, we won't give them, like, any actual responsibilities. They'll just have to, like, look nice in public. And 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 you know, if the prime minister of Japan comes to visit, they can show his wife around the rose garden, like that kind of thing. Hmm. I think this could really work. And plus, which like I, they're just so fun to watch. Like, are you watching The Crown? Do you watch The Crown?
2: Oh, it's already been binged. Addicted, I'm waiting for season
0: a four. <laughs> addicted, did. Like Helena Bonham Carter. Like, I just wanna, I just wanna be her cigarette smoke or something. I I just I'm she's so good. But just the idea that, like, their job is to be a public distraction, their
2: job is to be entertainment. Exactly. And they didn't sign up for that. And some of them aren't very good at they it. They didn't, but many of them are paid quite handsomely for it. Yes. And so, you know, you got to do it if you want to get, if you get the money. Right, <laughs> You got to go right. out and do the job. Right,
0: right. Which so. I guess is, you know, why why um, Meghan Markle wants no piece of it. She's just like, I don't, I don't want to do this. And, and I respect that. I respect her. Yeah, probably better to have
2: thought about that before, before she you got married. married. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know who you are. A lot of people in my studio know who you are, but maybe some people who are listening to us don't know who you Uh are. Can you tell us who you are and what you do and give me a really brief bio?
0: Sure. Okay, so I'm Jennifer Weiner. I live in Philadelphia. I am a novelist, um, and my most recent novel is Mrs. Everything. And you're a Princeton
2: grad Mm -hmm. who went to work at a newspaper. Yes, when you could still do that. Um, When there were still newspapers (laughs) to work for. When there were newspapers to work for. And you grew up in Simsbury, if I remember correctly. I did. No one's ever heard of it. I've heard of it because I'm from New Haven. Oh, well, there you go. Yes. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I thought, okay... Mm-hmm. I know there are Jewish families in New Haven mm-hmm. and in Hartford mm-hmm. and in, and in West Hartford and yep. West Hartford but mm-hmm. Simsbury seems yeah. a little Were you the only Jewish kid in your class? There were 400 kids in my
0: high school's graduating class and 9 of us were Jewish. 9, wow. Yeah, so I mean and I would say to my mother like what are we doing here? Like why aren't we in West Hartford which had and has a significant Jewish population mm-hmm. and I, I think that my parents just sort of fell in love with the house that we ended up living in. And, and Simsbury is very lovely. You know, you sort of it's come beautiful. over. It's just gorgeous. It, it looks like this, you know, your stereotypical image of New England. Yeah, but it does. Absolutely. It, it was it was not a, a super happy place to grow up, I, I
2: have to say. wondering about that because mm-hmm. a number of your heroines are Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if being sort of the outsider in that way as you grew up in Mm -hmm. this little teeny hamlet in New England Mm -hmm. um, kind of gave you the observational powers to imbue your heroines with the ability to move as outsiders in their own lives. That's very
0: astute. And it's something that I've Thought about a lot and and talked about a lot. I think that being Jewish makes you an outsider in in many ways. I mean, you're not part of the majority religion. You don't celebrate the same holidays, and you you just come from a different place than lots of other people do. Um, but unlike other minorities, it's not always visible. So you can sort of you can pass in a way. You mm-hmm. can you can look like you belong, but um, you're you You sort of do and you sort of don't. and and I, I was, I was an outcast for a lot of other reasons, too, <laughs> namely, mostly my personality. <laughs> you know, like, my I have daughters. I have um, a teenage daughter and a, a 12-year-old daughter, and sometimes they will talk to me about their friend dramas and the stuff that's going on at school, and I'll, like, try to give them advice. And, and my daughter, Lucy, who is the – she's the teenager, and she's super sarcastic, and she'll just roll her eyes at me, and she'll say, um, you know, I'd like to talk to somebody who actually had friends when they were my
2: age. Oh. I know. <laughs> oh, for this, I was in labor with you for 48 hours and finally had a C-section and took exactly. years to get my bodies back. Really, child? Exactly. I, oh, I my, had my God.
0: I had my physical last week. And, you know, when you go to the doctor these days, they're like, are you safe in your home? Are you experiencing any abuse? And I'm like, hey, I live with a 16-year-old, so, like, the abuse is pretty much constant. It, it never
2: stops. But, you know, I... It goes away eventually. When I they're know about 25 or so. I know.
0: <laughs> okay, so I was the oldest of four kids mm-hmm. and I was very nerdy and I was a bookworm and I switched schools also. I I went from one elementary school to a different elementary school and so like I went from from having no friends to like having negative friends. Like it was it was bad and I was lonely and you know, I read a lot cuz the books would keep me company. And I spent a lot of time, to your question, thinking about, like, why doesn't anybody like me? You know, like, why am I so on the outside? What makes me different? What can I change? What can I what can I not change? And, and how am I going to figure this out so I'm
2: not so lonely all the time? Coming up, I asked Jennifer how she covered so much ground in her latest novel, Mrs. Everything. This was sort of my
0: swing for the fences book. Like, it felt like this was a time where...
2: I was called to speak up and and say something. And a warning to listeners that there is sensitive language around the topic of molestation.
1: We'll be right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rothy's. Rothy's are stylish, sustainable shoes made for life on the go. Carefully crafted from repurposed plastic water bottles, Rothy's are fully machine washable. Best of all, they're comfortable and have zero break-in period thanks to their seamlessly knit design. Plus, Rothy's always come with free shipping, free returns, and free exchanges. You'll quickly discover why BuzzFeed called them their forever shoes. Rothy's are available in a wide array of colors and patterns. Find your perfect pair at rothys.com slash minute. The world is complicated, but knowing the past can help us understand it so much better. That's where we come
2: in. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah.
1: I'm Ramtin Arabloui, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast.
2: Every week, we'll dig into forgotten stories from the moments that shaped our
1: world. Throughline from NPR. Listen and subscribe now.
2: You are the oldest of four. Mm-hmm. In your most recent book, Mrs. Everything, you focus on the dynamic of a Jewish Family in Detroit, where there are two sisters. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of issues in here. It was like sibling rivalry mm-hmm. and the struggle for upward mobility and civil rights and later on nascent feminism mm-hmm. and a couple of absolutely breathtaking betrayals, one of mm-hmm. which involves mm-hmm. sexual molestation. Why wow. was it important to roll all of this out in one book? <laughs> well,
0: In the wake of this election and in the wake of the understanding that there were a lot of really, really resentful white Americans, um, many of them men and, and a lot of them women, a lot of women voted for Trump. You know, people who looked at the ways that the country had changed and didn't see progress, but who saw instead something that they found unsettling enough to vote for this disruptor as a president. This was sort of my swing for the fences book. Like I wanted to write a book that, you know, that wasn't an issue book with like, I'm going to now stand on my soapbox and bash you over the head with my beliefs for 400 pages. But it felt like this was a time where I was called to speak up and, and say something um i and and I you know even though that was that could be uncomfortable at times, you know, mm-hmm. I think that silence is the luxury of the privileged, and it wasn't a luxury that i that I want to give myself or that I wanted to give myself as as a writer and just as a person moving in the world.
2: you know one of the things that I was struck by was the sort of reversal of the your sisters, Joe and Bethy. That mm-hmm. Joe was sort of the rebel who mm-hmm. suspected early on that she was interested in women, but she also knew that in nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties, Detroit, that was not going to fly, and that her mother was going to be absolutely horrified. Right. Bethy was sort of the dream child. She was the perfect figure and the cheerleader and the mm-hmm. drama club and the everything else and the, mm-hmm. the social butterfly where Joe was much more. I have a couple of good friends that her mother thought was unsuitable because they yep. were black good friends. Um, and but then as they grow older, they flip. Yes. And Joe becomes a perfect suburban housewife, Yeah, uh, and Bethy becomes the, you know, wild-haired, hippie, yep. rebel. Why was it important to show that reversal? Well,
0: there are there a couple of reasons. One is I'm always interested in the fluidity or the rigidity of the roles that your family assigns you. Pretty much every family does this. You're the good one. You're the smart one. You're the athlete. You're the pretty one. You're the troublemaker. And I'm interested in how how those roles do or do not define us as we grow up and and maybe grow out of them. So I was interested in having, like you said, the good girl and the problem child. And then for different reasons, because they encounter different societal pressures, having them switch. And Bethy's this good girl, and what happens to her is she's molested by a family member and can't really talk about it, um, can't really make her mother understand. She doesn't have the language to say what's going on, and that messes with her with her ability to live comfortably in her own skin, it mm-hmm. messes with her her body image. It messes with her sense of herself as a sexual person. Um, and I just it was so interesting to me because the the first public event that I did with this for this book, it was like a, a group chat with these women who were part of a of a book club, like thirty women, maybe. And we started to get into the Bethy of it all and that, you know, and I said, I wanted to talk about this because I know that it's something that women go through and it's something that that impacts many women's lives. And I'm watching these women as they're replying to me on the screen and rolling down in the comments in the right hand of my screen says, this happened to me only it was my babysitter or this happened to my best friend Mm -hmm. or this happened to my cousin or I mean every single woman seem to have been touched by that. My hope is that as we come to a greater awareness of this, then then maybe maybe we'll be able to start chipping away at it, and
2: maybe it'll become less frequent. Bethy, at one point after she's been molested, uh, resorts to what a lot of women do, which is put on a lot of weight um, in an effort to make herself less attractive Mm -hmm. to people who might try to abuse her. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a different kind of weight issue than the issue that some of your heroines struggle with. But you've been very upfront about wanting to show Mm -hmm. women in your books who are not all, I live in LA, size double zeros, Mm -hmm. um, who have real bodies and who are living with them, but also having to make adjustments because they have real bodies. Right. You've said in other interviews uh, and other talks that at some point people have really pressed you to sort of slim down Mm -hmm. your heroines, to Mm -hmm. not have them be uh, zaftig or even fat. And you've resisted that. Why is it important to have heroines who are big women? Well, the short answer is that representation matters,
0: and I think that if a fat teenage girl can pick up one of my books and can see a woman who is her size, who is not a martyr because of it, who is not the sassy best friend or the sidekick, and who gets to live a full and rich and eventful life in that body— I think that girl becomes more willing to believe that it's possible that she too could have all of those things in her body, that she doesn't need to change or make herself less, make herself smaller, make herself able to fit bodies are so complicated, it never seems to end. And then I look at the men in public and and all of the ways that they are allowed to be, and the way that they're allowed to age, and the way that they're allowed to lose their hair, put on weight, get wrinkles, all of it. And, you know, I look at women, you know, like newscasters, and it's like, gosh, they're all like 35. And they sort of all look like Barbie. And that's changing a little bit, but I don't think it's changing enough yet. And I want to, I want more diversity. I want more diversity in in every way you could think of. And I think that bodies are something that I would like to see more diversity, you know, as a plus size woman myself, as the mother of daughters,
2: I think about this endlessly. One of your best-known books is In Her Shoes, Mm -hmm. and partly it's so well-known, I think, because it was made into a movie starring Cameron Diaz and Toni Collette and Shirley MacLaine, none of whom are really plus-size. I guess you could argue that Toni's a big girl, but they're not really plus-size. Oh, I have a story. (laughs) Oh, well, here I am. I'm a reporter, tell me. (laughs) Uh, Yes,
0: okay, so um, as people know... um, in in her shoes, Rose, who was the character that Tony Colette played, was a plus size woman. And when they cast Tony Colette, I was delighted because she had just made a movie called Muriel's Wedding, yes. where she was bigger. Yes, and I'm like, well, this is fantastic. She'll gain weight. She'll look like the way I imagined my Rose, and this will be super, and everything will work out. And um, you know, fast forward to they start shooting, and I guess that. Well, I know that Tony Collette, she had made a movie, she'd just come off this movie, a small independent movie where she was a grieving widow. So she was about as thin as thin could be. Mm. And they're like, Well, don't worry, don't worry. She's she's gonna gain some weight and you know, she's gonna she's gonna start eating and, and a couple of weeks go by and they call me and they've like they tell me she has gained ten pounds. And I'm like yeah, that's a good weekend for some of Big us. Big whoop,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right?
0: Like ten pounds. What that? What the age? And then, and then, you know, I inevitably I get the call where they're like, um, "She's hit a wall." And I'm like, what? What is this wall of which you speak? Like, there is no wall. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so um, she's plateaued in the opposite I, direction. I the know, dreaded plateau. No. And so that was. I mean, I was happy with so many things about that movie, but I wasn't happy with the idea that we were all supposed to believe that, you know, Tony Collette, with you know, who was maybe a size eight, you know, was supposed to be plus size. And I, you know, I think that there are writers who do have the power to say, like, you're not making this movie until we get somebody who looks right. But at that time in my career, I was not one of those writers. And, you know, they, they just sort of said, like, this is is this is the most you can hope for. But yes, I do. I do wish that. I, I wish they'd found somebody bigger. But they, you know, the problem is, there, there were no big stars who were both the right age and the right size. And and now Holy. has that
2: changed? No. I, well, we've well, got Chrissy Metz and Melissa McCarthy uh-huh. and Rebel Wilson yep. and Gabby Sidibore yep. and AD Bryant. I mean, mm-hmm. they're all they're all big girls and they're all working now. They're all big girls and they're all working now,
0: but I mean, I don't think five's anywhere near enough, especially when you look at the world around us and it's like normal women don't really get to see themselves much on television. I mean, like, I used to joke, like, the only time I ever saw anybody who looked like me was when Courtney Cox wore the fat suit on Friends, and, you know, to to be Fat Monica, which was super problematic, by the way. That's not insulting at all, right? Super problematic. Mm. You know, you can do a lot more on the page than you can on a screen. You have a lot more freedom, and you don't have to worry about, like, who are they going to cast, and
2: who's going to play this? You can just write it the way you see it in your head. Okay, time for our final break. After the break, Jennifer tells me about getting personal in her books and whether writing about herself has gotten a little too close for comfort.
0: Support
1: for this podcast and the following message come from Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the puzzle game that has an engaging story and engages your brain. With thousands of puzzles that update monthly, so there is always a new challenge to master. Best Fiends is the five-star puzzle game
0: that can be played anytime and anywhere. No internet required. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Best Fiends. That's friends without the R.
1: NPR's Code Switch is a podcast about race in America that's about all of us. Our histories, how we're represented, the ways we've worked together and worked against each other. You'll learn. You might get mad. You'll definitely laugh. But don't take my word for it. Just listen to NPR's Code Switch.
2: Do you worry ever that you're sharing too much of Jennifer Weiner? in the books. You've been very open about how some of your characters parallel Uh your own life. And I'm Uh wondering whether you're like, "Uh, why did I do that? Because now I'm going to have me quoted back to me when I'm in the grocery store. Well, you
0: know, it's so funny. Like, I will have women come up to me at readings and they will say like, I feel like you're my best friend. (laughs) And like, part of me will be like, where were you in middle school? Like, I could have really used some friends. and Like, where were you? But yeah,
2: thank you. You're redundant now. I,
0: yes, exactly. It's like, and then my actual best friend is like, they don't know what they're in for. <laughs> but you know, the short answer is no. Like, I, I really, I don't feel like I'm overexposed, and and that's something I've been thinking about. A lot lately because Elizabeth Wurzel just died. Yes. Elizabeth Wurzel, yes. author of Prozac Nation, right. who is sort of regarded as one of the the pioneers of, of TMI. You know, mm-hmm. like she mm-hmm. put it all out there, whether she was talking about drugs or sex or sex on drugs or divorce or her family or and, – and got – a tremendous amount of blowback for doing that. And people were just like, why are we reading this? Why is she writing this? Why? Who who gave her permission to sort of talk about these things? And I, I guess
2: that Whereas I, Brett Easton Ellis or yes, Jay McElhinney is like, we can talk about all our depravity see, and no problem. The, that's, that's literature.
0: That's the thing. Like there is a very gendered way that we approach people talking about their personal lives. And it's just like you said. When men do it, it's capital L literature. When women do it, it's an overshare.
2: Um, Continuing a little bit in that vein, about a decade ago, you became famous for something other than your books, although it was related <laughs> to it. Here we go. You called out a Times Book Critic for what you saw as sexist treatment of women mm-hmm. in the book section. And you mm-hmm. also pointed out how they weren't included in the books review, how mm-hmm. the Q&As were sort of noxious and they were vastly mm-hmm. different from how the men were. Tell us just a little bit about what moved you to publicly call that out and what happened after you did. Well,
0: um, I was raised by a feminist mother and I was raised um, in a progressive Jewish tradition where it's our job to – You know, the short version is sort of if you see something, say something. Mm -hmm. If you see injustice, if you see inequality, your job is not to sit back and say, hey, that's someone else's problem. And then I just started like counting just even in my own head, like how many women are showing up in the New York Times book review versus how many men? How many women are getting their books reviewed twice versus how many men? How many women are getting their books reviewed twice and getting profiled versus how many men? And it was a lot more men than women. And I surprise 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 and I'm like you know what like this isn't fair and it doesn't feel fair to me and I don't think it's fair to all of the other women who are being published and I'm going to say something about it. Um, you know, and the blowback was pretty quick and pretty brutal. And it was a lot of Jennifer Weiner's books are crap, and they don't deserve any attention. And the reason the Times doesn't write about books like hers is because they're crap, and they're terrible, and they don't deserve any attention. And she's not writing literature. And how dare she? How dare she complain about the attention that Jonathan Franzen is getting? I mean, she's no Jonathan Franzen.
2: Even when the book, when the Franzen book is not all that impressive.
0: Well, and it's like, Look, I never said I was Jonathan Franzen. However, I will say that I'm noticing that geez, The Times has a column devoted to mysteries that runs every week in the book review and I they don't touch romance. Now, and I know that romance vastly outsells mysteries mm-hmm. and vastly outsells literary fiction and in fact the sales of of romance make that genre possible in many ways you know it's like all of those harlequins that make a literary novel that's going to sell 2000 copies you know economically feasible for a publisher to do and then this organization called vita actually did a count where they went through the new york times and the new yorker and the atlantic and harper's and the new york review of books all of these prestigious publications, and they actually counted bylines and they looked at how many books by women are getting reviewed, how many women are writing reviews, how many women are getting written about, and it was a, a shocking disparity in some cases. I mean, the first year they counted, I think I think the New Republic had reviewed seventeen books by men and one book by a woman. Mm and you know and and the times was not balanced and i mean they weren't as nearly as bad as some of the other places but there was a real disparity and 10 years after that conversation Things have gotten better. The Times covers romance now. There's a columnist who writes about nothing but romance novels. Um, There's a, a woman who's running the New York Times book review. Their numbers have gotten a lot better. The ratios of men versus women who they're reviewing, who they're getting to write reviews has changed. And even in the places where it hasn't gotten a lot better, all of those editors at one time or another have had to they've been called to account, they've had to justify their crappy ratios. And in some cases, they've said, like David Remnick at The New Yorker says, yes, we realize this is an issue, and we're going to try to do better. So, you know, it was a conversation. And it was, you know, a a big and sprawling and at times mean spirited conversation. But I think it was a conversation worth having. And I think that, if I have any kind of platform, if I have any kind of public standing, I want to try to use it to make the world more fair.
2: Speaking of platform, mm-hmm. you are now an op-ed contributor at the same newspaper you <laughs> called to task for not treating women very well. How about that? How about that? Uh, the uh, Satisfying. arc of moral justice.
0: <laughs> yes, it, it, it blah, blah, bends blah, blah. slowly, but it bends towards justice. Even, yeah. Yes.
2: What are you working on now? I understand there's a book in the works that's going to be out uh, very soon, like this spring, this summer. um, It's called Big Summer.
0: And I I wanted to write something that was a little more lighthearted and um, that took place in a more compressed period of time. Like Mrs. Everything covers like 70 years. And I I was so like deep in the revisions and the research. And I just said to my husband, like, my next book, it's going to take place over a weekend. And Big Summer is about a, um, a plus-size Instagram influencer, which is a, was a new world to me, and I ended up learning a lot about it, who has a complicated relationship with her business beautiful and rich and privileged best friend and is invited to be part of the best friend's wedding and um, things go down over the wedding weekend and my heroine has to take a hard look at who her friend really was and to think hard about who she wants to be
2: great yeah there are a lot of women writers who, during their lifetimes, I think, people looked at them and said, Oh, you write books. That's nice. That's, mm-hmm. that's cute, basically. Mm-hmm. But now they're dead, and we're studying them in, you know, lit classes. Mm-hmm. Um, you think people will be studying Jen Weiner in lit classes, <laughs> you know, See, that, that I don't 50 know. years from now?
0: <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, the people who are going to make those decisions probably haven't been born yet. And it's but it's interesting to think about, you know, like, do I I would love to write something that somebody decided was important enough and meaningful enough and had enough to say about the times we live in now to actually want to study it in the future. Um, I would like that. But I also recognize that it's entirely out of my control. And what I can control is sort of writing the best books that I'm capable of, talking about the things that are are important to be talked about. If either of my daughters ends up being a writer, I want her to be able to be a writer and not a woman writer. I want her to be able to start from the same place on the track as the guy next to her and not have to clear a bunch of hurdles first and explain no, this isn't romance. No, this isn't chiclet. No, this isn't, you know, whatever dismissive genre label they're going to be using in 10 years or 20 years. This is a book just the same as his.
2: Inshallah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and let it be so. Yes. Well, Jennifer Weiner, it was an absolute pleasure. Oh, I thank plan you. on diving deeply into Big Summer when it's available. But I promise, if I'm ever lucky enough to run into you in a grocery store, mm. I will not rush up to you and go, I feel like you could be my BFF. <laughs> I'll just nod uh, and keep strolling just not, by and saying, calmly. There's a fine writer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. This was a pleasure. Thanks again to the delightful Jennifer Weiner. She knows how to give good straight talk. Her book, Mrs. Everything, is out now. Big Summer comes out in May. Shout out to my Code Switch team, where you can find me on the regular. That's it for today. Sam's back in your feed on Friday with the Weekly Wrap. See ya.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. (laughs) Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.